This is the audio from a sermon that I preached at High Point Church in Altoona, Iowa, covering a portion in Hebrews that is often very confusing, but as I think you'll see, also very encouraging for followers of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, High Point Church. As you may have heard, my name is Ray Burns. Uh, just like Taylor is not the normal music guy, I am also not the regular preacher man this morning. Um, as I was talking to him this morning, I said, you know, the the, the elders are really letting the animals run the zoo this morning. Between him doing music, me preaching, uh, is what it is. Um, but I am uh, I am extra excited to be up here this morning uh, because this is actually a morning of firsts for me. Uh, first, number one, is this is my first time ever actually getting to preach in a church. Uh, I don't know if this is like brain surgery where you're not supposed to admit that, but it's out there and here we are. Uh, this is also the first time I've ever had a teenage son, as today is my son Max's 13th birthday. I have been threatening him that we were all going to sing happy birthday, but I'll behave and spare him and all of us from that. Uh, now, as I've been preparing for this morning, my prayer over the last week and a half has also been that this would be a morning of firsts for many people here. Uh, the, the passage that, I'm get, that I've been given is not a pleasant one. You're not going to get warm, fuzzy feelings. You're not going to you know, walk out of here maybe even with a smile. But it's a understanding this morning's passage is vital to our walk with Jesus. And so my prayer has been that for many here, this would be the first day that you see God even bigger than before. Or this would be the first day that, that you surrender a sin that you've been clinging on to and surrender that to Jesus. So before we uh, jump into uh, the message this morning, I'd like to just open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are perfect, you are holy. Um, I thank you for uh, this morning that we've been given and in your sovereignty, directing everything as you have. Um, I just pray that uh, this morning really won't be about the words I say and people hearing me, but that you would just let me be a tool as the Holy Spirit works through me. Um, and I also pray that the Holy Spirit will just be so active in the lives and hearts of many people here, as we all just see what your word has for us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so a very quick recap of uh, two weeks ago when Greg preached. Uh, so we started, he started in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, which really leads us perfectly into what we're going to be talking about this morning. So Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 uh, gave us two things to keep in mind that's going to be relevant for us to, uh, today. First is that we want to remember God's faithful followers who ran with endurance. So you remember Hebrews chapter 11 was all about people who, because of their faith in God, because of how they trusted God, they lived and made certain decisions and lived a certain life that even though it didn't make sense in their circumstances, even though logically and humanly they should have done something else, because they had faith in God, they endured and they lived faithful lives. Not perfect lives, but faithful lives. Uh, second, we are told to remember what Jesus did, uh, specifically with his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, right? In dying for our sins and taking the penalty of sin for his people. And because of what Jesus did, we don't want to grow weary. So this is all a big focus on endurance, right? Keep going, keep moving on. Don't stumble, don't faint, don't grow weary. And so it's with that lead up then that the author of Hebrews is then going to show us where this endurance comes from. Because a lot of times, I think, maybe especially today, we think, I need to be spiritually strong. I need to endure. I need to be tough. I need to fix this. We have a very me-focused idea of where our spiritual maturity comes from, how it is that we're able to endure in Jesus. But the author today is going to show us that that endurance that we get, the ability to live a life dedicated to Jesus, doesn't come from our own strength. It's actually something that God works in our lives 
to give us that endurance to, to rely on him in the first place. And so um, what he's going to show us, the, the title of the sermon is Endurance from the Father's Discipline. And now when we think discipline, we want to have the word picture of a parent and a child, right? When a child is out of alignment with the parent's wishes, when the child is in sin, when they are disobedient, the parent will discipline them to correct that behavior. And that's the kind of discipline that we're going to see that God puts us through today. Um, and the first thing we're going to see in verses 4 to 6 is that God will discipline his children. So he starts off in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, saying, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So here, remember, he's coming right off what he said, that Jesus did shed his blood. Jesus did die for sin. And he's pointing out that uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, he reminded us that this, this group had undergone sufferings for Jesus. They had had struggles in their lives, but not yet to the point of death, not yet to the point of being killed for their faith. And so he's telling them that you haven't reached that point yet. But what he's going to now do is he's going to build a case and help them understand how they can have a faith so deep, so rich, and so meaningful that even if they got to a point where they had to choose Jesus or life, they would be able to choose Jesus. They would be willing to die for Jesus because they had a faith that endured. And so now he's going to start getting us into what that actually looks like. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And now he's going to quote Proverbs chapter uh, 3, verses 11 to 12, and say, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the, the word in the middle there, reproved, is, is a great word. And it's one I want us to understand today. Simple way to think about it is it's when we expose error in something. So when God is reproving us, he's exposing an error. He's showing a way that we are not in alignment with him. And so two things, very briefly to understand, that he is, is preparing us to understand is that discipline is not going to be a pleasant thing. It is painful, but it is necessary. Because look what he says. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or become weary from it. Why would we grow weary? Why would we regard it lightly? Why would we, another way of thinking about that is why would we despise that discipline? Because we don't like things that are unpleasant. We don't like things that aren't making us happy in the moment. And so he's reminding us as he's getting in to the bulk of, of uh, his point is that Understand that God's discipline will come. God will discipline you, but don't hate him for it. Don't reject it. Don't ignore it, but value it, right? Find the good in it. And then uh, he goes on and he tells us why it is that God disciplines us. It's because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So as we're talking about discipline this morning, as we are working through something not super pleasant to think about and especially not pleasant to experience, understand that if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, any discipline you face always 100% comes because your God loves you so much that he needs and wants to dis discipline you. Now, before we move on in Hebrews, I want us to make sure we are very clear on what this discipline looks like. Um, because we can, we can go too far one way or the other in what this discipline means. So what I'd like to do is just very quickly show three, I think, broad ways that if you are ever going to experience discipline or you've ever experienced discipline in the past, three broad categories that we can maybe lump all of that into. Now, the first way that God disciplines us is discipline through conviction. We see this in John 16, verse 8, 
saying, and so this is Jesus speaking, and he says, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, that's because the Holy Spirit did his job. Your decision to ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to save you, your decision, is, as it were, to place your faith in him, didn't come from you. It came from the Holy Spirit's work in your life, exposing your sin and how you've broken God's law, showing that you have no righteousness that God demands, and that because of your sin, you had God's judgment and wrath on you. But that salvation came when you also realized that Jesus died for your sin, that Jesus will give you his righteousness, give you the perfect life that he lived so that God can look at you like he looks at Jesus, and that Jesus faced that judgment so that those who place their faith in him do not have to. But even after that, the Holy Spirit's not done with us because at salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and he dwells inside of us. And he keeps on that work of convicting us of sin. Now, not convicting us because we're still facing God's judgment and wrath. Again, that was all taken care of at the cross. We have no fear of God's wrath anymore. But that doesn't mean that we're done sinning. The Holy Spirit knows it. You and I know it. We still sin. And the Holy Spirit disciplines us through exposing that sin in our lives. He, he lets us know, hey, here's how you're out of sync with God's will. Here's how you're out of alignment with what God desires for you. And now I want us to take a, a brief pause, right? And it's going to be an awkward pause. I'll just warn you. I want you to honestly evaluate over the last week, this morning, right now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is the Holy Spirit convicting you of anything? Is there something, no matter how big, no matter how small, because remember, Jesus had to die for even the smallest sin in your life, which means the Holy Spirit cares about even the smallest sin in your life. Is there anything that God is convicting you of today? Now, if you can say yes, now I'm not saying God has to convict you of something. That doesn't mean you're perfect or sin-free, but I also don't want to put pressure and say that, you know, the Holy Spirit has to convict you or you need to, to feel bad. But if God is convicting you of something this morning, that is God's discipline in your life. Think about it like a parent. You know, whether maybe your parents or maybe you've adopted the superpower of the look, right? You all know what I'm talking about. When you're messing up as a kid, or, or your kids are messing up and you just give them that look, you don't have to say anything, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to intervene, but they know that they are in the middle of something that you are pointing out is wrong, right? That is a form of discipline. It's a very light form of discipline. But that is a form of discipline that God exercises through the Holy Spirit in your life and showing you that you are in error somewhere that God does not want you to be. And now just as a parent hopes that that look will be all that's required for that child to realize what they're doing wrong, to fix it, to correct it, to even put up safeguards, to not do it again. I think God also hopes that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is all we need to surrender that sin to him, to confess it, to confess it to those that we're sinning against. But if you're a parent, if you were a child, if you are a human being here today, you know that just because you realize you're in error doesn't mean that that immediately changes it because there's a lot of times that we say, I know this is wrong, I know it's bad, but I want it, I need it, I'm so convinced that this is good for me. And so if that's the case, then it's, I think that we can see that God will put us through two other kinds of discipline, depending on what our perfect God sees that we need. And the first one is discipline through suffering. And now a lot of you might be saying, hold up, hold up, wait a minute. Suffering? God would never put his children through suffering. God loves us. God doesn't want anything bad to happen to us. I've got Jeremiah 29, 11 on a coffee mug at home. I know God doesn't want me to go through suffering. 
you've twisted my arm. Let's see what Jeremiah 29, 11 actually teaches us about how God disciplines us through suffering. And now for the full context, we're going to start at verse 10 and go all the way through verse 13. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, quick context here. Old Testament story, Israel did what Israel does. They were live, excuse me, living for God for a time, but then they, got, they started looking at the other nations around them. They started pursuing their own desires. They started worshiping idols. They started worshiping false gods. They started doing what they felt was good for them. They started living life their own way. And so God, because he loved Israel, is going to bring correction into their lives. And that correction would come at the hands of a wicked pagan nation called Babylon. And so Babylon comes in, attacks the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah, uh, kills people, leaves some of them behind, but takes a lot of them into captivity. And so Israel is there, taken outside of their land. And that is a huge deal for Israel, because in Old Testament thinking, God had a territory. His territory was Israel. If you were in Israel, you were in God's land. But if you were outside of Israel, you were in the land of false gods. You were in the land of demons. You were in the land of wickedness and evil. And so Israel was taken out of God's territory and taken and to be controlled and owned by this pagan kingdom. And so they're sitting there wondering, what's going to happen? When's God going to come rescue us? When's our Red Sea moment going to come? And so God tells them, you are going to be here for 70 years. Now really think about that. If you were 20 years old at that time, you would be 90 before seeing freedom from this pagan land of Babylon. Most, if not every single person who was intelligent enough to understand what was happening would probably be dead because I don't think being a captive in Babylon was a spa day, right? The conditions were probably not conducive to good, long, healthy living. This is a horrible, terrifying thing. They were outside of the land of God. They were going to die in captivity. It, it may have felt like their God had abandoned them. They were going to suffer deeply for the rest of their lives. But notice then what God says, the famous verse. After telling them that they would be there for 70 years, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you hope and a future. So no, God didn't want to hurt them. God wasn't angry at them and just punishing them because he was angry and wanted to take it out on someone. He loved them. He wanted to give them a future and a hope. Even through this, this circumstance of suffering, even through this lifetime of suffering, God's end goal was their future and hope. But that future and hope was not prosperity. It wasn't their happiness. It was loving their God. That was their greatest future. That was the only hope that they could have in their life. And God shows them what's going to happen after this. He reveals to them his end goal. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That was God's whole point. He was taking them through suffering. He was taking them through pain. Why? Because he is a good God. He loved them so much that his greatest desire for them was for them to love him because he knew that that is the best thing for them. But it wasn't going to come easy. They were ignoring the look. They had ignored all the calls to turn back to God. So God was going to put them through pain and suffering for their own good. Now, I want to be very clear, though, that not all suffering in your life is God's discipline. We live in a sin-cursed and broken world. Sometimes bad things are just a part of life, right? But if you know that you are in sin, you know that God is correcting something, whether you get caught, whether you lose a job, whether you lose a relationship, whatever it is, 
you, you should know what God, when God is disciplining you because he's doing it for a purpose. Now, the uh, third way that we can see God's discipline in our lives is discipline through allowance. Now, I know we're on the parent thing. I don't want you to think allowance as getting five bucks a week for taking out the trash. Think of allowance as God allowing us to have that sin, that idol that we crave so deeply. The, the worldly living, the lifestyle, the identity that we think, if I just had this, it would make me happy and it would bring me ultimate satisfaction. Sometimes God will do the horrible thing of actually letting us have exactly what we want. So look here what he says in 1 Timothy 1.20. So the context here is that Paul's encouraging Timothy to endure in his faith and not to fall away, not grow weary, not to get distracted by worldliness like other people in this church had been. And then he says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So again here, this is just like that, that territorial idea that we saw in Jeremiah, right? The church is seen in a way as God's territory. And so these men, they were blaspheming God in some way. We don't really know how, but they were blaspheming and they just would, would not repent. They would not listen. They would not surrender to God. And so God gave them over to exactly what they wanted. They didn't want to be in alignment with God. They didn't want to be in obedience to Jesus Christ. They did not want to surrender their lives. Then God gave them the life they wanted. He handed them over to Satan. In other words, handed them over to worldly living and worldly thinking. But again, what was the goal? Not because God was tired of them. Not because God just couldn't even anymore. It was because they had to learn. God wanted to teach them not to blaspheme. And so you might be here today. And God might be giving you over to all the desires of your heart. You may be sitting there and feeling like, yeah, you know, I've got everything I want, but I'm still not satisfied. Things are still not right. Because I got to tell you, for all the ways that God has disciplined me, this has always been the most painful in my life. Because with, with you know, with the look, it's like, I feel bad, but, you know, you can rejoice because you immediately surrender it. With suffering, it's very clear what's happening. It's, it's an immediate thing, and you know, okay, I really messed up that God is intervening in this way. But with allowance, it is a slow poison because God slowly gives us over, and we slowly walk out of the light of God and slowly into the darkness of the world. And it can take weeks or months or even years before we realize just how far away we've walked from God, just how much this worldly living, this idolatry, all this stuff that we trust in, it can take so long for us to find ourselves at the bottom of the well and realize all the stuff I trusted in is absolutely nothing. And even that is God's good discipline in our lives. So, understanding that, understanding that God will discipline us. Um, the next thing that we're going to see in verses 7 through 13 is that God always disciplines us for a purpose. Now, I've kind of spoiled that in the first point because it's really hard to talk about how God disciplines without immediately seeing the aftermath of it, right? Because God's not random. God is always working with a purpose. But now we're going to see, as the author points out, that God always disciplines with a purpose. So in Hebrews uh, 12, verse 7, in the first part of it, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Now, I prefer how the Legacy Standard Bible translates this because I think it's a bit more in alignment with what the author is pointing out. Uh, and there it says, it is for discipline that you endure, or it's because of discipline that you endure, or it's through experiencing discipline that you endure. In other words, what, what did the author call us to at the very beginning of chapter 12? To endurance, to not growing weary. Where does that come from? Not our personal strength. It is through God's, in, through God's discipline in our life. 
in us seeing the reality of our sin and making the choice, am I going to surrender and lean on Jesus or am I going to lean on myself? Am I going to trust the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world? And when we keep insisting on having our own way, God puts us through discipline that ultimately teaches us that relying on ourselves, trusting in our hearts, going our own way, doing what makes us happy at the expense of everything else is never going to bring satisfaction to a true follower of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on then at the end of verse 7 and into verse 8. says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Now, this is a really cool uh, thing that the author does here. So in the context of when this was written, a son was more than just someone that dad taught how to do sports and work power tools and, and to shave and things like that. A son was an inheritor. They were meant to gain the family legacy, the family reputation when they came of age. And so one important role in a father's life was to train their sons, to discipline their sons, to prepare them to inherit this thing that was waiting for them so that they could be good stewards of it, so that they could carry on in the father's will for their family. And now we as Christians, we are called heirs with Christ, right? We will inherit eternal life through him, right? We will be resurrected, we will have our glorified bodies, and we will live with Jesus forever. But we will also reign with him. And I don't know if everyone here realizes that, but when Jesus fully returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, we are said that we are going to reign with him. We're going to rule Christ's kingdom alongside him because we will inherit it alongside him. So, just as a, a father is disciplining his son and preparing him to inherit something, God is also disciplining and preparing us. He is preparing us to, yes, live for eternity with Jesus in, in sinless perfection with him, but also preparing us to be a child of God today, to walk in alignment with the family of God, to be a good son of God who brings glory to the Father and doesn't, you know, besmirch his name. And so, again, it's just this really cool picture that God treats us like a father would treat his child in preparing him and loving him so much to want him to inherit these good things, to want him to have a life that was in good and alignment with the Father's will. Then he says, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So I said, you know, it's pretty obvious. This is not a pleasant topic. I'm not going to try to dress it up and pretend that it is. But look at what that says. Why does God discipline you? Because you are his child. If you do not have God's discipline in your life, it's because you are not his child. So even though this is a hard topic, understand that if God is calling you to conviction of your sins, or if he's putting you through suffering, or if he has just allowed you to be handed over to the worldliness that you so crave because you trust all the lies of the world, God is doing that because you are his child. So no matter how horrible we realize our sin is, no matter how embarrassed or ashamed we are before God, understand that if God is disciplining you, it is because you have salvation. It's because you are not losing your salvation. So for as bad as our sin is, understand that you cannot lose your salvation, but that God, because he loves you, because you are eternally secure in Jesus, is going to work through your life, through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, to draw you closer to Jesus. But the flip side of that is that if you don't understand what I'm talking about this morning, if you don't understand what the discipline of the Lord is in your life, question your salvation. I mean that seriously. Don't just think, well, I said I'm a Christian, I prayed a prayer, and then I've just been living my life. Maybe you did truly trust Jesus for salvation. 
But if the Holy Spirit living in you is content to sit alongside sin day after day after day and is not pointing out how you are not in alignment with the God who saved you, that's a cause to question our salvation. Now, as he continues on here in verses 9 and 10, says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Now, so the author here is pointing out that, you know, we had good fathers who, you know, they were imperfect, they were sinful people, but they did their best. You know, they tried to discipline us, they tried to lead us in a way that they thought was good and right as far as their understanding went. How much more will your good and perfect God know what is good and right for you, know what is perfect for you? How much more will he act like a perfect father in your life? Now, if you're here, maybe you are like my wife, and you grew up with a dad who you're like, yeah, I totally respect my dad. And perfect as he was, he loved the Lord and he tried to, to guide me in the way that he best understood. Maybe you're like me and you didn't know what a good dad looked like until you met someone else who had one, right? Because growing up, I didn't have a dad where I could be like, oh yeah, I respect my dad for, for the upbringing that I had. You know, maybe you had a dad who just didn't let you understand God in this way. And I want to take a, just a pause and clarify something that I think we have to understand when we're talking about God's discipline. If you are a follower of Christ, God is your heavenly father. 100%, it'll never change. But understand that your earthly father was not God. If you had a dad who you grew up and he was constantly angry, and you never knew what was going to set him off, and you just had to kind of toe the line and try to avoid his anger. If you had a dad who was abusive, and he, you know, because he was so strong and he was stronger than you or your siblings or your mom, if he had a bad day at work, if he was just angry at life, he would just knock you around because he could. If you had a dad who would manipulate you and try to control you through guilt and just tear you down and try to dominate your life by making you feel so inferior and worthless. If you had a dad where you had to earn his love, where his love for you was directly proportionate to how well you performed in school, how well you uh, did in sports, or how you looked, or your popularity, or whatever it was. Or if you had a dad who just wasn't there. Maybe you never met him, maybe he walked out on your family, maybe he was there, but not really there, he was always working, he was involved in his own life. If that was your understanding of a father growing up, that can very easily warp how you understand your God. You can think of God's discipline and how God works in your life in the same way that your dad demonstrated fatherhood to you. And so if you're here and you are, are struggling with that past with your father, understand that your God is not like your earthly father. Your God is perfect. He is perfect in his love for you. He's perfect in his righteous anger. He's perfect in his judgment, in his justice. And he is always, always, always perfect in his discipline in your life. It's not always going to be pleasant, but always understand that God is always doing it because of who he is and not because of who your dad was. So if God's not doing this because he's angry at us, because he wants to hurt us, because he's so big and strong and he can, because he's not trying to control and manipulate us, why is God doing all this? Why this huge discussion on discipline? Why should we care? The author tells us, God disciplines us for our good. And what is that good? It's not your happiness. We've seen that already. Your happiness is not God's greatest goal. What is good in your life? What is the best thing in your life, according to God, that we may share in his holiness. Now, holiness in the Bible is effectively a separation from the world. So God disciplines you when you are outside of his holiness. 
So when you are stuck in worldliness and worldly thinking, when you are finding your hope, your satisfaction, your identity, when you are living your life for anything other than your God, then you are outside of holiness. And God is disciplining you. Why? With the express purpose of bringing you out of that poisonous, toxic, worldly living and bringing you back to his life-giving holiness. Now, continuing on in verse 11. Uh, you know, this, this stuff, it's unpleasant, and I think the author knows that because he reminds us, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Is anyone here really excited for God's discipline? Maybe it's exciting to, to, to know what it's about, but no one's jumping for joy being like, yeah, I can't wait for the next time God disciplines me. No, it's not pleasant. It's never going to be pleasant. But that's okay. Because later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is a process. Fruit doesn't grow overnight, right? Fruit is the result of long and careful growth until it finally becomes the fruit that it is. Your holiness, your spiritual maturity, your walk with Jesus is exactly the same way. Some things God may just abracadabra fix immediately. But a lot of times, if you talk to any mature Christian in your life, they will tell you that where they are is a result of a lot of failure, a lot of pain, a lot of sin that God had to help them cut out of their life. Because without it, they would be nowhere without God's work in their life. And then he uh, finishes up this discussion here with an uh, athletics metaphor, because that seems to be what we keep going back to, uh, saying in chapter... Uh, 12, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Uh, so again, racing metaphors. It seems like we can't get out of them. I am just as knowledgeable as Greg is about how racing actually works. But what I do know is that if you are a runner who is going to go a long distance run, you need to have those, those core main muscles trained, right? They need to be capable of carrying you on. But you also need to have those stabilizer muscles there for when the terrain gets uneven and rocky. You need to have them there prepared to catch you and protect your important stuff. And so that's really what the author is capping off this discussion on God's discipline with, is that it is, it is all about that endurance, right? It's all about God preparing us, God training us to be able to go on, to have a faith where we would willingly die for Jesus because he is so much more precious than anything else. So... Uh, the author here, he's, he's going to finish talking about kind of the, the good aspect of discipline, right? How God is working for our good. And he is going to conclude here with why. So what happens if God doesn't do this, right? We've seen the good, oh, God disciplines me for my holiness. That's great, but maybe we feel like, but I'd be fine without that. Like, I can still be happy. I'm still happy being a Christian and having my salvation and having my get out of hell free card. Do I really need this holiness stuff? Why does God care so much? And that's what he's going to wrap up our discussion this morning revealing to us. So in Hebrews chapter 12, our, uh, so he's going to show us uh, the third point in verses 14 to 17 is that an undisciplined Christian is destructive. So picture that kid at Walmart who has never been told no in his life. You can see him. You can see the chaos he's causing. You can see his worn down parents and you can hear him, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And God's going to show us that that is me and that is you without God's discipline in our lives. It's not just a matter of, oh, we can be really holy or really evil or somewhere in between. Without God's discipline, we are only purely evil and destructive to ourselves and those around us. 
So in verses 14 to 15, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So uh, simply put, just for sake of time, what he's pointing out here is that our holiness, our discipline, the life we live affects every area of our life. It affects our horizontal relationships, right? Because it's saying strive for peace with everyone. So how you live, whether you live in alignment with God's will or live outside of it, is going to affect your relationships with everyone around you. It's also going to affect your relationship with God because it talks about striving for the holiness, right? That's that vertical relationship. So God is going to discipline every area of your life because every area of your life must be surrendered to Jesus. Every area of your life needs to be lived to the glory of God and not to the glory of you or me. And then he says, I see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. <clears throat> so the, the root of bitterness here, this is a callback to Deuteronomy 29.18, if you want to go check that. Um, essentially, you know the phrase, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, where if you have one apple that has rot in it, and you shove it in the middle of an apple barrel, and then that rot extends around it, and then those apples rot other apples out. That's basically the, the metaphor here, saying that not only does your lack of discipline, your lack of endurance, it doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. So if you are here, and you are a regular tender of High Point Church, or if you are here and you, you are part of a family or a group of friends, how you live for God has a direct impact on people around you. If people see you enduring, if they see you living for Jesus, if they see you excited about the Lord, that's going to rub off on them. But if they see you living a worldly life, coming to church on one day and living for God and then living for Satan six other days out of the week, people are going to see that and be like, well, maybe that's how I'm supposed to live. Maybe that's okay. Maybe they are going to miss out on experiencing the joy and the blessing of God because they see you missing out on it and think, well, maybe that's what Christian living is supposed to be. It's just, I'm saved and that's good enough for me. And so I go to my social club on Sundays and that's it. God disciplines you for your good, but he will also discipline you for the good of everyone that you will ever come in contact with. Because what we do in this life matters, not just personally, but because we are meant to serve and love those around us. And we can't do that if we are not loving and serving God. And then finally, he's going to wrap up with a little bit of a Bible story. So as he uh, closes us out in verses 16 and 17, he's going to talk about Esau. Uh, now you can read about Esau in Genesis chapter 25 and 27. Uh, I'm just going to very briefly summarize his, his, the point that the author is making here. So he says then, as he is concluding this and showing how destructive we are without discipline, why God has to discipline us or it's going to go badly. He says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So what's the deal with Esau? Very quick story, Esau was a firstborn son in his family. He was the son of Isaac. And by their culture, Esau was meant to inherit all the blessings of the family. So everything that the family had, everything the family stood for, their possessions, all that stuff, 100% was supposed to go to Esau. He was supposed to gain the world when his father passed. But Esau was a spoiled brat. He was favored by his son, or by his dad, um, Seems like he was never told no, especially based on the context of why the author is quoting this. Esau was just allowed to do what he wanted, and as a result, Esau lived according to his own desires. Whatever he wanted, he went for. If he felt like, mm, I, I want this, but I probably shouldn't, didn't matter. He would go get it. And so it says that he was sexually immoral, because Esau 
you know, he was a guy who wanted to get married. And so he, his, he and his family were people who followed God. And so his parents very wisely wanted him to marry someone who would also direct him to Yahweh God. But Esau looked around at the cultures around him, at these nations that worship false gods, and said, no, they're really pretty. They make me feel good. I want them. And so Esau gained several wives from, from pagan nations who would not lead him into godliness, but would lead him into worldliness and into false living. And so he was sexually immoral because it didn't matter what was good or right. It didn't matter what he knew he should do. Esau wanted it, and Esau lived by his emotions. He said, if I want it, then that must be what I have to have. He lived by his experiences. I need to feel good all the time. I need to constantly feel happy. I don't want to experience negativity. I don't want to live a life that is, is denying myself. You know, I've, I've gone for these things before. I've, I've pursued my pleasures before and it made me happy, so I'm going to keep doing it because it's always worked out for me in the past. It says he is unholy. Again, what is holiness? Holiness is a separation from the world. Esau was not separated from the world. He did not have his thoughts surrendered to God. He thought exactly like those pagan nations around him, and he lived exactly like you would expect him to. Then it says he sold his birthright for a single meal. For a single meal. So one day, Esau came in from hunting. He was supposed to be a great hunter, but just completely whiffed it on his hunting trip. Came in, probably hadn't eaten for, I don't know, 12 hours. And, you know, when you haven't eaten for a long time, you've been out in the field hunting, running, climbing trees, whatever, you're going to be a bit shaky. But Esau, being completely controlled by his emotions because of what he felt in the moment was absolute truth to him, he thought he was going to die. If he didn't get a meal in five minutes, that was it for him. And so he comes in, and his brother is cooking veggie soup. And this isn't like that really nice progresso kind of soup. Like, this was what you would make as a farmer back then. And he wants it so badly. He just, he needs that soup or he's going to die. So his brother says, okay, you want this soup? Sure, just give me your birthright. Give me everything that you were meant to inherit. All the good coming to you, everything that our father has set aside for you, give it up and give it to me and I'll give you this soup. And Esau says, well, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I have to have this. So fine, it's yours. I don't want it. I don't care about it. What I need, what needs, what is going to satisfy me is what I'm seeing right now. And so Esau threw away everything that was rightfully his, according to their culture. And for Jews hearing this, right, because Hebrews is written, is aimed at Jews, he threw away their inheritance, their heritage, their legacy. He was an absolute traitor to them because he did not value the long, big thing because he was so focused on the little thing. And so it says here that, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau threw away everything for momentary pleasures. He was undisciplined. He didn't tell himself no. He didn't care about what was good and right. He cared about what seemed good and seemed right in the moment. And what God is pointing out here is that that is me and that is you. If God does not discipline you, you will not make the right choice. You will not live a good life. You will live as an enemy of God. You will be controlled by everything around you, by you know, uh, ungodly worldviews, by your emotions, by your experiences, by what your friends say or what Hollywood says. Everything will tell you what is good and right in your life. But if it's not God doing it, you are going to live a life of destruction. Now, you are not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to lose out on your inheritance like Esau did. Don't get that too confused. But what you will miss out on is the life that God has for you today. It may not be, it may not be a life of wealth. 
It may not be a life of fame. It may not even be a life where you just get to smile all the time because God calls you to serve in the worst places in the world. But what you will miss out on is God's goodness in your life, the life that he has saved you into through the blood of Jesus Christ. You will miss out on that without God's discipline in your life. And the more you fight God, the more of his grace you're going to miss out on in this brief life that we have here on this earth. So, all that being said, uh, you know, we've been, I've been teaching through this, but let's just cap it off with four ways that we can respond to this lesson in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 to 17. Number one, we want to understand the difference between discipline and judgment. God will deal with every single one of your sins, including mine. Now, if you have put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ to save you, God's going to deal with your sins today, but he's always going to do it for your good. He's going to discipline you because he loves you. He's going to see to it that those sins that you are putting your faith and trust in do not satisfy you, that you are always pointed back to God because he loves you and that's what you need most. But if you are here and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God is going to deal with your sins too. He's not going to deal with it in this life and he is not going to deal with it for your benefit, and for your good. If you live this life, and you have broken even one of God's laws, disobeying your parents, lying, lustful thoughts, anger, stealing, if you, have, or if you are guilty of even one of those things, one day when you die, you will stand before God. And he, God will be the judge in that moment. He will open up his law, and he will see, how have you broken my law? And God is a judge. God is not a tax accountant. God's not sitting there looking at your good, looking at your bad, seeing which one outweighs the other. A good and perfect judge does not care about the good stuff you've done. A judge judges you according to the law, and that is precisely what God will do. He will judge you according to the law. And if someone, if Jesus Christ has not paid the penalty, if he has not suffered and died for your sins, then you have to take the full weight of what your sin deserves. And that is an eternity in the lake of fire. Do not let today be the day that you just ignore this and keep ignoring it. Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life because he is God. He died on the cross. And on the cross, it wasn't just a human death. God poured out his wrath. Every sin that I have ever done, every wicked thing I have ever done or will ever do, Jesus took the penalty that I deserved on the cross. I have put my faith and my trust in him. I know that I can do nothing to save myself. You can do nothing to save yourself. It is only trusting that Jesus Christ paid it all, asking him to save us, repenting from that sin that we've put so much of our trust in, and trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save us. Now, if you are here and you, you don't fully understand that yet, there will be an elder or one of our pastors in the back right corner of the gym afterwards. They would love to just show you why you need Jesus. Now, number two, we want to make sure that we repent if the Holy Spirit is convicting us today. Early at the beginning, I said, what is the Holy Spirit convicting you of? Maybe you had some ideas. Maybe you've gotten an idea as I've been speaking this morning. If God is disciplining you in some way, if he is convicting you, or if you're beyond the point of conviction and he is disciplining you in some other way, turn away from that sin. Repent of what you've been putting your trust in. John, our first John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are here without Jesus, it is never too late to repent from your sins. If you are here with Jesus, it's still never too late. It doesn't matter how long you've been living this life of of unrepentance and rebellion against God. It is never too late. And it's never so bad 
that, you, that God can't forgive it. It's also never so little that you shouldn't bother God with it. Every sin matters to God. Jesus died for every single sin in your life. Therefore, when we recognize, when God is identifying a sin in our life, what more can we do? What more should we do than confess it, to turn away from it, to surrender it to Jesus? If necessary, to confess it to those that we've sinned against. Take your sin seriously. God is not messing around with it, and neither should we. Number three, trust that God's discipline is for your endurance and spiritual maturity. It's a painful thing. It's an unpleasant thing. But as we've seen, it's an unnecessary, it is, goodness, it is a necessary thing. We don't want to be like the screaming kid at Walmart. We don't want to be an example like Esau of what it looks like to be undisciplined, to have a father who doesn't love you and discipline you for your good. Know that however painful, however miserable, however true uh, Hebrews 12:11 is, that it is good and necessary in God's love in your life. And with that, number four, rejoice in God's love and your salvation. This is not a pleasant topic. For, for my first time preaching, it's like, oh man, I am such a negative Nelly with all this. But you know, no matter how bad discipline feels in the moment, no matter how much we don't look forward to it, no matter how much it hurts us, always remember that God disciplines you because he loves you, because you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ today and forever. Nothing can take away your salvation. So rejoice. Praise God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of discipline. Praise God that you are experiencing it because he loves you, that you can survive it because he loves you, and that you will endure, that you can live a life fully devoted to Jesus Christ because your God loves you. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, you are so good. We don't deserve your love. We don't deserve anything from you but your wrath. But you sent your son despite all of that. Thank you for who you are in disciplining us as your children. Thank you for your son, who has given us adoption as your children. And thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in our life, for the conviction that he brings, for the discipline that he brings, and how he is always, always working in our lives, in our hearts and minds, for our good as he points us to you so that we can live more and more like Jesus. I pray that anyone here that has been convicted of sin, whether it's because they are guilty of sins and need Jesus, or have been redeemed by Jesus, but are still living in their sins, God, just call them to conviction. Call them to turning to you. Call them to absolute surrender in their lives because there is nothing greater for them than a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Amrit in the faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash Amrit in the faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.